Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds and that you would speak to us and that you would make us attentive to your voice. God, we ask that you would break in among us and where there are false narratives that we've believed about ourselves or about the world or about others, we ask God that you would expose that and that you would bring about true change in our life because of the truth and beauty of the gospel. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So I don't know what you were told when you first got a Bible. So I grew up in a, in a Christian home and uh, my grandparents are Christians and the Bible was something that in our family was a revered book, you know? And so I think early on as a kid, you know, we had Bibles around, we had a, a really, really big Bible on top of um, uh, one of our bookshelves. It was like, it was literally like this big. It was like one of those big, big Bibles. And I remember my basic impression of the Bible was something like this. This is God's word. It is all true. Don't set anything on top of it. And, um, you know, you respected it and you revered it, but you just didn't really read it. Or if you read it, you didn't really understand it. And then something happened in my life. Um, I met Jesus as a 16, 17-year-old. My life was transformed and I really became alive to God. And as part of that, I started to read the Bible. Now, at first in reading the Bible, you know, I'd read a chapter a day, I'd read a chapter of the New Testament every night before I went to bed. And over the course of a couple of years, I worked my way through the New Testament and then I started in through the Old Testament and I had this really high view of the Bible. And, um, and, and for, for many years, engaging with the Bible, I asked very few questions of it. You know, it's kind of like reading the thing. It's like, this is God's word. It's all true. It's beautiful. It's awesome. I'm reading through it. And then I don't know when it was, and maybe it was when I first started having kids, but I can remember beginning to read through the Bible, and I began to see things differently. And I remember the first story that caught my attention that sort of was jarring to me, uh, and I think maybe I had a child on my lap or something, but I read about God's command to Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And all of a sudden, I was like, oh my goodness, how could he ask that of Isaac or of Abraham? And, I, and, and then as I continued reading, you know, you start reading about the, uh, the slaughter of the Amalekites and the Canaanites, and you're just like, oh, this is kind of violent. I didn't even see this before. And then there's, you start to notice things that start to feel jarring and troubling. And I don't know if that was your experience at all or if any of you have had that experience, but, but you know, you begin, you're kind of our naive and you're, reading, you're like, oh, this is awesome, great. And then you're like, what? And then, and then, and then you start asking questions. Uh, there's, there's theological questions we have about the Bible. And these are big questions that not just I had and not just maybe some of you had, but they're questions that the church has been asking for as long as there's been a church. Uh, questions like, What's the relationship of the Old Testament to the New? Uh, what's the relationship of the law to the Christian? Or um, what's the relationship to Jesus to the whole thing, you know? Um, how does Jesus relate to what's gone before? Because sometimes you're, reading, you're just like, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like what I was reading about Jesus sounds like what I just read about in this jarring, violent, dark Old Testament passage. And, uh, and, and so I've had questions. Some of you have had questions. The church has asked questions about the Bible for as long as the church has had a Bible. Now, 
I think a lot of our questions can stem from the fact that some of us have a little bit of a misimpression about the Bible. So my original idea was that, uh, I, I don't, I, nobody actually told me this, it wasn't taught in church, but I think I just had this impression that the Bible fell from the sky into the hands of people and it came uh, chaptered and versed and wrapped in one of those genuine, you know, imitation leather covers uh, with your name inscribed on gold. And of course, the Bible didn't come like that. Uh, the Bible came over a long period of time in bits and phases, and it is not really a book, it's a collection of writings uh, written by many different authors over a long period of time. And the interesting thing is that there is a progression that happens in the Bible. There is a story that's being told. In fact, this is probably the, the primary thing I didn't get is that the Bible, and this is kind of so interesting, and if you've ever read um, other books and other religious traditions like the Quran, uh, this is a, a place where the Bible stands apart. Uh, the Bible is not simply a collection of moral teachings. It's not even a collection of systematic theology. The Bible is an unfolding story. It tells the story of God and his relationship with the world, especially his relationship with a people called Israel. And then the story begins to progress and unfold, and it reaches a climax. There's a climactic moment, and that climactic moment happens in the person of Jesus. And once that penny drops, and you start to begin to read the Bible as an unfolding story that climaxes in Jesus, you start to read the Bible differently. Now, more on that later. Um, so we've been in a series in the book of Acts. We've been talking together about the explosive growth of that early Christian movement. And we've seen how the church went from this, this ragtag group of disciples huddled, scared in an upper room to become the most powerful transformative movement in the history of the world. And we've been asking, like, how did the gospel gain such traction in the ancient world? And what can we learn from the early church? And last week, we began a discussion uh, about um, a, a shift that took place that was critical to the growth and the expansion of the early Christian movement. It was a dramatic paradigm shift about the nature of the church, and it happened to a man named Peter. And so we talked about uh, Peter last week. Uh, this is a little review if you weren't here. Uh, but Peter sees this uh, vision. He's in a hungry trance. We all know about that. Many of us have been in hungry trances. Amen? And a sheet falls from heaven, and there's all these animals. He says, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. And as the story unfolds, uh, God speaks and transforms Peter's heart and mind. And more than that vision, Peter experienced something. He watched the Spirit of God fall on these uncircumcised Gentiles. And Peter has this radical paradigm shift, uh, where before, in, in his own imagination, and this was what early Christians began. You know, Christianity began as a Jewish movement uh, in Jerusalem with a bunch of Jewish people. And in their imagination, they thought that, look, sure, Gentiles can come into this family around Jesus, but if they do, they have to become Jewish. And so the basic formula that they had was you come to faith in Jesus. And then you put on the Jewish uniform, you circumcise your male children, you keep Sabbath, you eat kosher, uh, you do all the ritual purity, ceremonial laws, you do all that really, really faithfully, and you can be a full-fledged member of this family. And that's what Peter thought. 
But then in this encounter, Peter had this paradigm shift. And he went from faith in Jesus plus the Jewish uniform equals full inclusion in the family to faith in Jesus plus nothing equals full inclusion in the family. And this radical paradigm shift opened the door for a brand new kind of community that the world up to that point in history had not yet seen. It would be a community where all of the old barriers, all of the old walls that separated people would be torn down and we'd all live together in the same house. It would be a multinational, multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational, multi-everything family that would reflect the multifaceted, multi, you know, everything love of God, a new family gathered together around Jesus. Paul would later put it like this. He himself is our peace who has made the two groups, speaking of the Jews, the uncircumcised ones, and the Gentiles, one, and has destroyed the barrier, the wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, why was he doing all of this? It was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. I was talking to a friend of mine a a few weeks ago over lunch and he said, you know, he says, I I, I just, he says, I'm all about reconciliation. He says, because I believe God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and he's called us to be about reconciliation where old walls have been put up with people around us. Amen? So we are instruments of reconciliation. And so this message of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This message of Jesus plus nothing equals full inclusion in the family of God. You trust in Jesus, uh, you devote yourself to the way of Jesus in this world, and you're united together with a family of people who are doing that very same thing around Jesus. And and this message, it began to travel throughout the, the, the Greco-Roman world, and, and it moved from Caesarea where this message broke out among the family of Cornelius through the mouth of Peter, and it goes up to a, a rather large Gentile city called Antioch, and in this city, now a ton of Gentiles start believing, and Acts describes it like this. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So let me just share with you what's happening. Uh, The gospel travels up to this Greco-Roman city, Antioch. There's a ton of uncircumcised, you know, Jewish or non-Jewish people there. And they start hearing about Jesus. They're coming to faith. And all of a sudden, a new family is being formed in the city of Antioch. And it's a Jew-Gentile family. They're eating together at the same table. They're singing from the same worship book. They're learning the same uh, teachings of Jesus, all gathered together in one household, one a church family, Jew and Gentile. And, and the news of this comes to the, the church in Jerusalem. They hear about this new growing community where many people are coming to Christ. They're like, we got to send them some help. And so what does the church do? Well, the church in Jerusalem sends one of the best they had up there. Who did they send? They sent uh, Barnabas. You could tell by the picture it was Barnabas, couldn't you? <laughs> I didn't even need to tell you. 
he goes up to, to, to Antioch, and while he's there, the church that was growing grows even more. And the work becomes too great for one man. So then Barnabas is like, I need help. I need reinforcements. And so who does Barnabas call? He calls the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul comes and joins him in the work in Antioch. And together they are laboring in this church and it's growing. And then something happens. This church that has been so impacted by the gospel now sends Paul and Barnabas out around to other cities so that other people can hear this good news. And so they go out on their first missionary journey and they sail over to Cyprus and up into Asia Minor and they travel from city to city and they preach the gospel. And this is Acts 13 and 14. It describes their missionary journey. And on this journey, guess what happens? The same thing that happened with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. An uncircumcised Gentile is brought in. And the same thing that happened with Peter and Cornelius. A whole uncircumcised family of Gentiles is brought in. He goes up to Antioch and tons of Gentiles are being brought into the family. And then they're going out and, and Gentiles, are, and now new churches are being formed. These Jew-Gentile churches are being formed because they're preaching this message. There's been this dramatic paradigm shift. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals full inclusion in the family of God. Now, it turns out, though, that there were some people down in Jerusalem who didn't get the memo. They didn't have Peter's experience, and they didn't, you know, have Paul's experience either. They didn't see what was happening, and, uh, and they're concerned. You know, religious people can get concerned, I have concerns I want to talk to you about. You know, we get concerned. And there are these people, they have concerns. And why are they concerned? Well, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we've heard uncircumcised, they're coming into the family, they're sharing table with them, and nobody's asking them to adhere to the strict standards of Moses. And they're like, no way, that, that, that can't happen. And look what happens next. Um, this group, they look like this. They wore these red hats. I don't know if they wore the red hats. I just threw them up there. But they hear about this thing up in Antioch, and they go up to Antioch. And um, the, 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 the book of Acts refers to this group as the circumcision party, which that's not a party I want to go to, you know? And, um, and, and they're, they're like, we got to go up and make sure that these people who, who didn't submit to the rights of circumcision and all the other laws, that they, they recognize Jesus is not enough. It's Jesus plus something. So they start going up, and they start going into the place where Paul had planted his churches, and they're, they're like, they're, they're creating confusion, and the, the, the naive kind of, I mean, these people are brand new to the faith. And the circumcision party, you know what they had on their side? They had the Bible on their side. They could go and look, you know, the, look what it says. You got to submit to this rule, you know, and Jesus is not enough. And uh, they were saying, look, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Look, he says, they, they said, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. You need a surgery. <laughs> and they're like, they're like, what? Where's Paul? You know, so where, let's go get Paul. And you, know, and you can just imagine, you know, the, 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 the family pulls up to church in the minivan, and the dad says to his wife and kids, now, now you guys go ahead and go on. 
I need to think about this a little bit, you know? I'm not sure I'm ready for this surgery. You know, it, Paul said, look, it was Jesus plus nothing equals full inclusion, but they said, no, it's Jesus plus submitting to all of the Jewish stuff, then you can be fully included. That's what the Bible said. And, um, and again, this is creating confusion in the early church. Uh, they don't have these Bibles in their hands. Uh, they, they can go to the synagogue, there's a bunch of scrolls, but, but they need answers. And so what do you do? You're a church in confusion, you're up in Antioch, and they're like, they said this, and they said that, I don't know who to believe, and, and what's right, and what's wrong, and so what do they do? Well, they say, let's, let's go down, and let's talk to the folks who walked with Jesus. Let's talk to the specially selected apostles, and let's ask them, and say so they would go down to Jerusalem and uh, they take their question there. It says this, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, I just love the subtle way in which that's phrased. He had no small, like if you read through the, the Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, uh, which actually was written during the season after he got back from that first missionary journey before you get to Acts 15. He wrote this letter to these churches because they had people going in there saying, you need to submit to Moses and be circumcised. And he's like, no, 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 no. And he got so up, uh, like, like he was so under his skin at one point in his letter, he just says, I wish that those people who are trying to get you circumcised would cut themselves off. And you're just like, whoa, Paul, that's like... <laughs> That seems so, like, harsh, you know? But he was serious about this stuff. And so he's, he's, there's no small dissension between Paul and Barnabas and these other people, and they're like, we need to get somebody to sort this thing out. And so Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in de detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. I, I love that little detail. As they're on their way, they testify. Let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you what God has done. And they hear what God has done, and they're rejoicing. And uh, so then they, 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 they get down to Jerusalem. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. I mean, everybody loved Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they had risked their lives for the gospel. They were, they were warriors, you know, hard, you know, they had been beaten and they had suffered for the gospel. They show up and everyone's like, yeah, Paul and Barnabas, you know, they're all excited. They're, they're welcomed. And, and, and again, they declared to them all that God had done. And then they call a church meeting. Now, this church meeting is one of the most neglected and uh, uh, just, neglected parts in the New Testament. People just don't pay much attention, but this chapter is, this meeting is so important. And I get why a lot of Christians don't spend a lot of time in Acts 15. It's because in the context of the rest of the book of Acts, it's not that exciting. Acts has Paul getting thrown in prison and broken out, and then he's got, you know, shipwrecks, and, and uh, you know, there, there's so much exciting stuff happening in the book of Acts, and you get to, you're like, oh, it's a church meeting, you know? It's a congregational meeting. I've been to those. Like, let's just pass over that one. But don't pass over this one. He calls a congregational meeting. And the agenda is this. What is the Christian's relationship to the law? What is your relationship to the Old Testament? Like, what's, 
How do, we, how, how do we make sense of all of this? And do the new Gentile converts have to live and behave and believe like Jews? Do they have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? Now, let's just pause because I, I know it's easy to caricature the, 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 the Jewish folks, the circumcision party, and maybe I'm even doing that in how I'm talking, uh, 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 kind of in what they were anxious about. But let's just be sympathetic for a minute. Throughout the Old Testament, Gentiles could convert. They could become a part of the family of Israel. They just had to submit to the Jewish rites and ceremonies. They had to, again, circumcision, all that stuff. Talked about that last week. And so it made sense. Like, you come to faith in the Jewish Messiah, you, you got to do all that same stuff. And then beyond that, this was a point in time. This is in, sometime in the late 50s. Uh, AD, and in just 10 years, there is going to be a revolution against the Roman Empire. And in Jerusalem, there is national fervor. And so the, the Jews, in, they're full of nationalistic identity. They're like, we've got to protect our identity. And you relate to, you're like, yes, I get it. You know, we, we got to guard this stuff, you know. And, and so they're super concerned about this message, Jesus plus nothing, you get to just come in like, no, we've got to get them circumcised. And so that's the question on the table, do, and and this question has transformed human history. And how they answer it has transformed everything. And so um, notice notice where it begins. Um, It it says this, um, so Paul and and Barnabas, they testify about what God had done among, they start telling about the miraculous work God is doing among the Gentiles. And then uh, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, and some of you are like, Pharisees? Like, aren't they the group of people that was against Jesus? Now they're following Jesus? What happened? Like, what changed their mind? Listen, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't the parable of the prodigal son. It wasn't the magisterial teaching of the Sermon on the Mount that changed the Pharisees' minds. You know what changed the Pharisees' minds? Jesus walked out of the tomb. He was raised physically and bodily from the grave, and they couldn't, this is God's Messiah. They came to faith, and, uh, but they had this message. They said, look, it is necessary to circumcise them in order, uh, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so the apostles and the elders are gathered together. They're considering this matter. Well, do they? Don't they? And again, there's this contentious debate that is, um, it's rising up. And then uh, in the midst of the debate, Peter stands up. Good old Peter. And he speaks. And he says, look, look, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He had told them the story about Cornelius. And God who knows the heart, I love that phrase, God who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. And I just love that phrase. In a world marked by identity politics, where we have our tribe and we want to vie for our tribe and there's us and there's them and we are not them and we're better than them. That Peter declares, God makes no distinction. He says, having cleansed their hearts by faith, whether they're a Jew or Gentile, they come to faith in Jesus and, and look, they are, they're brought in to the family. And then he asked them this question. 
And this question ends up silencing the room and listen to what he asked them. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's almost like he says, he says, look, look, fellas, fellas, come here, come here, come here. Can we just be real for a second? Can we just be honest? Like, we've never been that good at keeping this law. Like, there's so much detail and so many ritual and ceremony, and it's hard, and we haven't been, and you're gonna, you're gonna foist this upon Gentiles who didn't grow up with this, and they don't know this stuff, and, and you're gonna make that a requirement for them being a part of the family of God? He says, no, he says, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. And after he speaks that word, it's like a mic drop moment. Peter's just like... And it says the room went silent. And in the silence, Paul and Barnabas speak up again. This is their moment. They're like, well, let me just, let me just say that I can testify. I've seen the Spirit of God change people's lives that are so different from you. And they don't, they don't think like you, they don't dress like you, they don't vote like you, uh, they haven't had the same upbringing as you, the same past as you, the same present as you, and God broke into their life, and he transformed them, and I've watched it, I've, I've watched God change their lives, and he related to them all the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. And then, after Peter and after Paul and Barnabas have their say. Finally, James stands up. Now, James, uh, this isn't the, the James who's the brother of John. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who interestingly is now the de facto leader in the early church. He's like the leader in the early Christian movement, which this is just, this, <laughs> this is just great. There, there's a pastor that I know that says this a lot, and I, I think it's great. He says, he says look, um, the, the, one of the great evidences for the resurrection is this, like in Jesus's life, his brother's thought he was crazy, they were kind of making fun of them. Uh, but then James came to believe that his older brother was truly the son of God, God in his, now let me just ask you, what would it take to get you to believe that your older brother was God? Like, it was because Jesus walked out of the tomb. He had been raised from the dead, and he couldn't help, like God has raised Jesus from the dead. So he's now the de facto leader of the church, and he stands up, and he's heard all the arguments, he's heard the debate, and now he's going to render the judgment. And here's the final word, and, um, and, and look what he says. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. We've seen it. We're watching it. And, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. It's not just experience. Scripture supports this. He says, uh, just as it's written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. It's speaking here about the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. And that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Basically what he's saying is like, look, the inclusion of the Gentiles apart from becoming Jewish is not a new idea. It has been God's idea all along. This is not a, a change in plans. This has been the plan all along. 
This is where this whole narrative, this story, this disjunctive, strange, ancient, sometimes violent, odd narrative, this is where it's been going the whole time. It's leading up to this moment where through this one man, Abraham, and this one nation, Israel, God would send the Messiah who would be Lord and Christ, not just for Israel, but for all of the families of the earth. And on that day, all people would be invited in by faith to pledge their allegiance to Jesus and to orient their lives around Jesus. That's what James is saying. Now, now he's going to say, so, so here's what we're going to do. And now he's going to lay out what he's going to do, and he lays it out in three statements. And these are the three statements that I want you to kind of like reflect on as we conclude today. Number one, he says, he says this, he says, this is my judgment, that we should not trouble those who are of the Gentiles who turn to God. In other words, he says, don't make it difficult. Let's not make this hard. Let's not make it hard for our friends, our family, our children, our grandchildren who are turning to Jesus by attaching things that are not essential to Jesus, to faith. He says, let's not make this hard. You know, it's interesting, different translations of this phrase. Uh, the NIV says, we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles. Uh, the, the, I like this. The, the Jewish uh, uh, Bible puts it like this. We should not put obstacles in the way of the goyim, which is the you know, Jewish way of talking about those of us in this room who don't come from Jewish ancestry. And then uh, the message puts it like this. We're not going to unnecessarily burden non-Jewish people. And the point is simply this. We are not going to require that they submit to the Jewish law and all the circumcision and the food laws and the, you know, all that's like, that's culturally Jewish stuff. And this is going to be a multicultural family. And it's almost like we could illustrate it like this. He says, look, there are people that are reaching out for hope and for life and they are lost, and they are stuck, and they are hurting, and they are looking for some sort of healing to their broken heart. They are looking for hope in the midst of their despondence. They are, they are looking for freedom in the midst of all of their slavery. And there is Jesus. And he says, look, don't put an obstacle that is unnecessary in the way of people meeting Jesus. Now, of course, in their context, the obstacle was like, like I, I like you, but I gotta, I gotta submit to all this stuff. And he says, no, take the stuff away. But in our, in our day, you know, of course, there are different things that we do. This week, I, I was thinking about the Jesus movement, and some of you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, and it tells the story of Chuck Smith and the Calvary Chapel movement. And early on, there's, there's a scene in the movie that, that's reflected actually in an incident that happened in the life of Calvary Chapel in its early stages. But Chuck Smith is up and, he, and he's, he's, he's talking to his congregation. And on one half, it's a very small group of people in suits and ties. And the other half, it's a, it's a bunch of hippies with dirty feet and long hair, and they're, they're, they're practicing communal living, and uh, they've opted out, and they're kind of like disenfranchised by consumerism and uh, the free market economics and all that stuff, and they're kind of like, and, and, and Chuck Smith just speaks to them, and he says, look, 
I want you to know that the door in this church is wide open to whoever wants to come in here. And then he looks over at the other people that are all ticked off at these people, and he says, and that door swings both ways. Like, if you don't like that they're here, you can, we're not going to make it unnecessary. We're not going to make them become like middle-class suburbanites in America in the 1970s in order to become a Christian. Like, you can actually just come to Jesus. But you know, there's other things. You know, I, I was thinking, um, I, I was listening to uh, recently, I've, I've listened to a couple interviews with uh, the musical artist Bono, again, because I'm a Gen X pastor, I love you too. Um, but, you know, he, he talks about early on, uh, he said when he was 16 years old, three things happened in his life that changed everything. He said, uh, I formed the band, uh, I met my my." my high school sweetheart who is now his, his wife of multiple decades, Allie. And then he said, uh, I met Jesus and he transformed my life. And he said, he and, he and, he and The Edge, you know, another band member, uh, they, they got involved in this really intense kind of charismatic Christian community that was into communal living. They were kind of radical and countercultural and all this stuff. And he, and he said, he, said he, he faced a crisis because on the one hand, he loved punk rock music. Like he loved the Ramones and the Clash and sticking it to the man and raging against the machine and the Sex Pistols and all that. He's just like, I love that, that kind of music. And he says, we formed this band and we just wanted to make music. And then he said, but, but we didn't know if it could coexist. Could I be a faithful follower of Jesus and a punk rocker? And he determined he could. And he's faithfully followed Jesus over many, many decades of his life, leaning into Jesus. You know, but, but sometimes we can put up like, no, you have to become different than the kind of culture you're inhabiting right now in order to be a follower of Jesus. There's other things we do, you know. Some Christian communities are subcultures that are marked maybe by anti-intellectualism, and people who are thinkers, people who want to pursue higher education, they don't feel like they can do that and be a, a faithful follower of Jesus. Some Christian communities, subcultures are anti-science, and some are pro a lot of things that just feel like, whoa, that, I'm not sure I'm, that sounds more like political ideologies. It doesn't sound like Jesus. And, 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 and we can think, do I have, like, and, and what the message is in this text is don't make it hard for people who are turning to Jesus. Don't put up artificial barriers that prevent people from coming to Jesus. Well, we gotta move quickly. Um, and of course, the assumption underneath this point is that there are multiple expressions of faithfulness. You could faithfully follow Jesus in the first century and have your male children circumcised, keep doing Passover, keep doing the Jewish feast, keep doing this, but you are loyal to Jesus. You've, you're finding your identity in Jesus, not around these things. You're willing to eat at table with other people, but you are practicing your faith in a very Jewish sort of way. And you can practice your faith in a very American sort of way, or a very Chinese sort of way, or a very Kenyan sort of way. I mean, all sorts of ways. There are multiple expressions of faithfulness. But, and this moves us to our next point, he wants us to know that there is also the possibility of unfaithfulness. There are many ways you can faithfully follow Jesus, but there's also ways you can be unfaithful to Jesus. And so look what he says next. He basically says, look, 
we're, we're not only going to not make it difficult, but, but look, we're going to tell them there's stuff you need to avoid. And look at the stuff. He says, we should write to them to abstain, to avoid things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So he's like, look, we got to tell them to abstain from some things. And, and here's the things they should abstain from. Uh, those, the stuff polluted by idols, sexual immorality, strangled animals, and blood. And you're like, now there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. Did he just like whittle it down to four? And, and why these four? I mean, I get sexual immorality, like that makes sense. And stuff polluted by idols, yeah, that probably makes sense. But strangled animals, like, is that a problem? <laughs> Like, you're like, this week, I got to really avoid strangled animals, you know? And, uh, and blood, I mean, I'm not out, I mean, rare meat, okay? But um, what's this about? Uh, the New Testament scholar Ben Withergreen points out that what unites each one of these four things together is that they were all things that were regularly practiced at pagan idol temples during pagan feasts. Uh, they would have temple prostitutes. They would be all about devoting things to the idols. Uh, they would have this practice of, um, uh, they would actually try to squeeze the life out of an animal to impart it to the idol. And they would drink blood, uh, sometimes believing that it would give them more power. And do you know what he's saying here? He's saying, look, we want our friends to come, know Jesus, come to know Jesus, and we don't want to put anything unnecessary in their way but there are some things you need to leave behind. There's a past you need to abandon. And in this case, what he's talking about here is he's not adding something to faith in Jesus. He is saying, look, to turn to faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus is at the same time to turn away from lesser trust. Trusting in things to protect you and keep you and, you know, you're gonna do whatever you can to get that thing, and you're trusting in that thing. He says, no, you've turned from idols to Jesus and to put your trust in him. And so he's inviting them and us to name and turn from the idols of our culture in radical and real ways and to put our faith and trust in Jesus. So he says, look, let's not make this difficult, but there's stuff you need to avoid and then he closes with this. And you can still learn from Moses. <laughs> Listen to how he puts it. He's like, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Or as uh, the New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce puts it, he says, look, there would still be ample opportunity for the Gentiles to learn from Moses because the law of Moses was read in the synagogues from week to week to week. What's the point? Listen, simply because non-Jewish converts, most of us in this room, are no longer in bondage or supposed to follow to the letter of the law all of the stipulations in the law of Moses, it doesn't mean that there's nothing we can learn from the previous chapters in the story. You know, historically, Christians have divided up the Old Testament law into these three parts. They talk about the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. 
the ceremonial law or the rituals and the sacrificial system and the rites, and they say all of that has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so when we read that, it's supposed to speak to us in some way about Jesus. The civil law, it was for a theonomy, a, a, a organized society that was underneath the authority of God. And from that, we can learn principles, perhaps, and wisdom about guidance for our own society. And of course, the moral law, uh, the, the New Testament itself draws upon the core law at the heart of the Mosaic law. And it's this law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Paul says all the other moral laws, it's all summed up in that one. Do that intensely and you will do well. And so what he's inviting us to do is to read our Old Testaments through the lens of the climax of the story. Anybody here ever seen the movie Sixth Sense? Bruce Willis, you know, I see dead people all the time. You know, some of you might. Anyway, the, the movie, if you've never seen it, I mean, it's been so long, so it came out in the 90s, so if you haven't, I'm going to blow the whole movie for you right now. But um, throughout the whole movie, you think you're watching one narrative. You think Bruce Willis is trying to help a child who can see and talk to dead people, and he's trying to help him work through this psychological issue. And throughout the whole movie, you're thinking one thing. You get to the end, and all of a sudden, it occurs to you, Bruce Willis is the one who is dead that the boy can see, and he's trying to help Bruce Willis get a grip on what's happened. And all of a sudden, you have to go back and rewatch the whole movie, and you see it differently. And listen, once Jesus has come, once the fullest disclosure of God's true self is broken into the world in Jesus of Nazareth, and you study and you read the life of Jesus, you need to go back and reread the rest of this disjunctive, beautiful, compelling, disturbing, you know, uh, unfolding narrative of Israel through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the key to the story. And of course, he's the key to our life, and he is the very center of our community. Amen? So today we're going to end once again, by coming to this table, this is a table of Christian unity. This is a table where those of us who are many come together and we gather around the one body that was broken and the blood that was shed for our healing and redemption. And so let's just pray together as we prepare to walk up to this table and share in these elements that unite us together as a family. Jesus is at the center of this community. He's at the center of our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you and we ask that more and more that you would wake us up to the radical freedom that we have in your son, Jesus that you would open our eyes to the multiplicity of ways in which people can faithfully and joyfully follow your son, Jesus. May you cultivate in us a deeper appreciation and love for our brothers and sisters, a deeper empathy and understanding from their stories that they're walking in. And God, would you unite us all together around your son, Jesus, and would you free us up from the idols of our culture so that we can be faithful and obedient and trusting disciples of your son. And we pray that even as we come to this table that you would re, 
enforce our unity and that you'd remind us that we are loved. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.